The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 13. As you're turning there, uh, and maybe you're not, so if you're not, if, if that's because you don't have a Bible, uh, we want to give you a Bible if you want one. So we have tons of them. We keep them on hand simply in case somebody needs one. So if you don't have a Bible and need a Bible, please let somebody know after the service, an usher, someone with a Here to Help badge, uh, or just step across the hall into our hospitality area. We have tons of Bibles. They're free for you if you want one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible right now with you or an app to follow along, the verses will be on the screens here behind me so all of us can study God's Word together. Thankful for that. Uh, we are continuing this week in our study of 1 Peter. Uh, we have called this series Refined because the overarching theme of the book of 1 Peter is that because of Jesus, we can rejoice and grow through trials. Uh, Last week, we even saw Peter say that trials are necessary as a part of our process of growth and maturity as believers, to which, when we read that part, most of you cheered almost uncontrollably to find out that trials are necessary as a part of our growth in Christ. So we almost lost control of the crowd last week. Try to keep that under wraps this week. Um, So we're going to move into then uh, the second half of the chapter, Um, and you're going to see a connecting word as we move forward here. Verse 13 starts with, therefore, and so Much of what Peter was doing was laying out, really in some incredibly eloquent language for a fisherman, uh, some beautiful dynamics and facets of the gospel. And then 13 is therefore. So he's tying the rest of what he's going to say in the chapter to everything he already said about the gospel. We're going to see in verses 13 through 25 a fluid mix of motivations and implications uh, for the way we live our lives in light of the gospel. Um, As we read this together, uh, as we're about to do, Try to assess really what kind of resonates with you, what stands out to you, and, and think about why. Because there's a lot, Peter's going to say a lot here. He's going to touch a few different things. And uh, it, it'll be an interesting exercise for you to see what, what jumps out at you. And it'll be telling then as we work through it, um, perhaps, you know, where the Lord's working with you in your life right now and maybe where there's uh, areas for continued improvement. So praise the Lord for that. I'm thankful he will not give up. Uh, working with me, or you. Okay, so we're in verse 13, and we're going to go to verse 25, ending uh, chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. He's really pulling punches on this one, isn't he? <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And I am thankful for God's word. Praise God. Amen. Uh, let's, so we're going to back up here to verse 13 where we started, work through this together verse by verse. Praise the Lord. Verse 13, so therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit. Some translations where it says keep sober in spirit will talk about self-discipline, having a disciplined life. It's communicating the same thing. That's essentially what's saying there. That's soberness of spirit. Like be aware that what's going on is serious. Uh, there's really something going on we need to be paying attention to, uh, and we don't have time for kind of goofing off. That's, that's the general sense that's being given there. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in the spirit. Um, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's very important that we remember the second half of verse 13 for the rest of these verses, because the rest of these verses can get really scary. If you don't remember, verse 13 was laid out as almost the, the key to understand the rest. So, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that grace is unmerited favor. We know grace is what God has showered upon us through Christ. It's not something we could have earned. It's something that is a free gift of God as a result of his mercy upon us. None of us have deserved grace. What we deserved was judgment and wrath. What we received instead because of Christ is grace. He lived the life we couldn't. He died the death we should have. And then he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death on our behalf forever. And God has made it so that by faith we are brought into that victory. That grace is what we need to completely put our hope in. And it's important because now he's going to start to lay some stuff on us. But if you don't have your hope completely in the grace of God, the rest of these verses are going to mess you up. And it has messed people up <laughs> throughout church history. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. So uh, I think I, I see 13 through 16 kind of going together. So... Then it, so then he mo moves on. Remember, keep your hope completely on grace <laughs> that comes through Jesus. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. Now, um, some of you may bristle up right at the, did he just call me ignorant? Well, he said at least you used to be ignorant. Now, I'll go ahead and raise my hand and say I still got days, right? <laughs> and no one else raised their hand. That's cool when that happens. Thanks, guys. All right, it's going to be a fun one. First Peter, here we go. Uh, but So really, I think what you should ask yourself in this is, um, do you see it the way Peter sees it? Because what he's saying is, don't conform to the former lusts, the former activities, things that you used to do as a result of your ignorance. I think for some people, they see their life before Christ. They see a lot of things they used to do. Uh, at some point, they, you know got Jesus, or however that looked for them, and now there's a bunch of things they used to do that they don't do, and if, some, if, if you were really honest, if you could shoot them in the arm with truth serum, sometimes they miss that, some of that stuff. 
Sometimes they're kind of like, well, I'm a Christian now, so I can't do that stuff. And it's not like there's not a lot of happy in the tone as they describe that. I kind of miss whatever all that stuff was, right? Um, we won't get into specifics because it's so different for all of us. Uh, but the reality is Peter saw those actions, those things that defy God's law, those things that go counter to God's character, uh, those things that if you're not ignorant, here's what you know about those things. Every single thing that God has said not to do is because if you do it, it'll hurt you. And every single thing that God says to do is because if you do it, it'll be good for you. And if you don't, it'll hurt you. <laughs> and so if you believe that, you see that those past activities, those past former lusts that, that used to drive you, it's not something you look back to fondly like, well, if it wasn't for, well, I got religion, so I can't do that stuff anymore. Like, do you really see that, man, the reason I used to do that stuff is I was ignorant, I was blind, I was foolish, and I caused a lot of damage for myself and other people with all of those activities. Do you, do you, do you see the ignorance in uh, defying the, the, the law and, and, and the good, benevolent boundaries that God gives us? That's what he's saying here. And don't be conformed to those things, those appetites that used to drive you. Set those things down, and instead of being sad about it that I can't do X, Y, and Z anymore, Rejoice in God that you're not an ignorant fool that wants to. And if some part of you still wants to, dear friend, I would just submit to you that now would be a good time to take that to the altar of God, set it down, repent, and ask for him to remove that desire from you completely and replace it with one that has some redeemable value. I heard all, there was, there was one out there. I heard it. You guys are getting it. It's so encouraging. Amen. That was a good spot to say Amen. Whoever got it, congratulations. I think upstairs they're handing out little coins for good behavior. I think I'm going to get some of those. Have them in my pocket. People amen at the right spot. I'll just throw them out there. Hallelujah. Positive reinforcement. Okay. 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay. This is where I talked about... I told you there's some terrifying verses in here if you don't keep 13 in view. Okay? This is one of them. Okay? If you're paying attention... you're you're sweating a little bit, okay? Because this verse says, it calls to us to be holy as God is holy. How are we doing? Anybody nervous? I'm nervous. I know, I, I know how to teach it. I studied it all. and I'm still nervous. Just reading it right now. Okay, first of all, we got to keep 13 in view. We fixed our hope completely on the grace that comes in Christ. And so the only chance we have in obeying any of this is through the help of Christ and his Holy Spirit. So we keep, Okay, that takes some of the weight off. Secondly, we need to work with the word holy a little bit. I, I most of my life thought of holy just as kind of an, it's just a word for God and it kind of contains in it a lot of his character, his perfection, all these things. Holiness is, is zeroed in a little bit more than that and it's, it's the essence of it is, is really to be set apart. And so um, what, what it, and it, it fits with the, form, the, the flow of thought here, right? He's saying, in your former ignorance, you used to conform to these lusts. Don't do that anymore. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And so there's this, this idea that God is set apart, the Holy One. There was all these other gods, right, uh, in antiquity, uh, and, and God really is set apart. When people say, oh, all religions are the same, no, they're not, not at all, because our God is not like uh, Zeus that was, uh, you know, coming down off of Olympus and, you know, having sex with mortal women, okay? We don't have that story, um, <laughs> God, our God is not like Ares that was around you stirring up people trying to get everyone to kill each other because he had this incredible bloodlust, right? Our God is not like Aphrodite with uh, you know, 
temples with, with the whole purpose of just worshiping sexuality. Our God is not like the Greek gods. Our God is not like Molech or Baal that was requiring child sacrifice of people. Um, he's, he's not the same. Our God is, is just perfect, and he stands alone. He is set apart. And, and so what we're being encouraged to here is ourselves to be set apart. Uh, in, in, in what? In our behavior. So what does that mean? That means to some degree, in whatever cultural context we find ourselves, in whatever time frame we find ourselves, the Bible says in the book of Acts that God appoints the time and places where we live, yes, so if you're here now, God meant it, it wasn't an accident, and so you've got to figure out what it looks like for you to be set apart in the midst of the cultural context you live in now. What does it look like? How do, how does your, how do you look different in the way you conduct yourself, in the way you speak, in, in your priorities, in the way you allocate time and resources? What are you set apart? Do you look different than your coworkers, than the, the other parents on the PTA thing, at the other, the other students at the college? What, is there something there that marks you and resonates from you, uh, showing that you belong to God, uh, and that also creates curiosity in others, which sparks the opportunity to share about the goodness of God. So that's, that's what's being called to there. Again, anytime I'm being called to, to be as God is, I instantly realize I'm in serious trouble, and I instantly realize I'm inadequate. And so that makes me run back to verse 13 and understand that that's going to be a pursuit to be holy as God is holy. It's going to be something I'm submitting daily to God in prayer. It's going to be something I'm trusting that his grace is going to empower me to do. I'm going to need the help of his Holy Spirit, and there's going to be days I'm going to get it wrong. And then what I'm supposed to do is to repent, ask for God to help me, to go from there, mercy's new each morning, and try to get it right that day. Praise God, that's the way he works with us. Uh, that it's, it's, not, um, it's not leniency like in a bad parent way, like, well, I just don't want to, I'm just, I just don't have the energy to punish him. It's it's, 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 he's got this incredible depth and understanding of the frailty of our nature. And he has, he has set things up in such a way that he can call us to this incredibly high bar of being holy like he is holy. Uh, and yet not leave us devastated because we fail at it. Right? There's hope because of the grace that comes through Christ. Amen. Uh, so why, why are these verses sometimes problematic? Well... If the Christian life, and it is, compared throughout the scriptures to a race, isn't it? If, if the Christian life is a race, we, we are ever plagued with the tendency for overcorrection. And most of the time when I think of the Bible calling the Christian life a race, I think of a running race, probably just because I'm assuming in that context that's what they were thinking of. Uh, and, that's, and that's fine, but think, about, think of it for a second if it was... And honestly, life sometimes doesn't seem like a running race. It seems like I'm, I'm driving at an incredible rate of speed and I can barely keep up. So I don't know if you can relate to that. But think of it, say we're in a driving race. We, we, are, we are ever plagued with the tendency for overcorrection. I don't know if you know what that means. But let's say if you're on one side of the road and you start to stray off into a ditch, you know, what you want to do is you want to bring the wheel half back so that you end up back on the road. But a lot of times, as soon as you feel your wheels hit that grass in the one ditch, you freak out and you jerk the wheel real hard and then you end up poof, all the way over in the other ditch, right? So we, and that kind of illustrates sometimes what we do uh, in dealing with behavior patterns, in dealing with theological issues. We, we like to jerk the wheel all the way back over and across the highway. So um, this, these verses pull out um, 
some of those, it makes evident some of those ditches and people have ended up in them. So I, there's, there's two ditches we all tend towards. And, and I want you to know right now, you, you don't get this perfectly right. Like if the highway in the middle represents a perfect gospel understanding in every situation, that I'm assuming, you know, I would say Jesus had that. We, at different seasons in our life and, and at different points of understanding, we are going to stray to one ditch or the other. And here's what those ditches are. One is moralism or legalism. Same thing, really. And people that struggle toward a moralistic or legalistic framework for understanding how to relate to God and others, they really, really like verses 14, 15, and 16. Do you understand why? Here, let's, let's read them again. Because if, if you start at 14, let's say you're a moralistic, legalistic person. And that means... Um, you really like rules, you really like the law, and uh, you tend to probably think you're pretty good at keeping it. Uh, you're going to really like to start at verse 14 and say, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which are yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Moralists, legalists, they really like those verses. They skip 13, typically. And they don't balance that in, right? So that's one ditch, moralism and legalism. Uh, the other side, the other side of the ditch, or you could call it relativism, which kind of like anything goes. There, there's, a more, there's, a, there's a more historical theological term I'll give you. I don't care if you remember it. It's antinomianism, okay, or being an antinomian. And what does that mean? That means essentially you don't think the law matters a whole lot. Uh, you don't really think, you, you really like grace scriptures. Yay, grace, woo, because of grace. It doesn't really matter what I do. Yay, you know what I mean? It's, we're popping confetti all the time. Doesn't matter. Um, and so it's, you understand what I'm talking about? You, you jerk the wheel one way or the other. Uh, these folks really like verse 13 because it says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the problem is, depending on what ditch you're on, you'll prefer one verse or the other. You'll not read one verse or the other, right? You'll have one on your fridge, but you'll, you know, Antinomians will have verse 13 on their fridge and just forget 14 through 16 like it doesn't even exist. And then uh, somebody that's a moralist legalist will have 14 through 16, man, they'll have that memorized and they'll be beating everybody with it. Most of the time except themselves, but, you know, they, they got that on lock. Here's the problem with moralism and, and relativism or antinomianism and, and uh, legalism. Here's, here's, here's why it's an issue. Here's why it's something we got to look out for. Here's why you need to be aware that right now, in this moment, you tend towards one or the other. So do I. Every single one of us, we, we, we tend towards one ditch or the other. It takes the help of the Holy Spirit sometimes to understand which side we're on. But we want to we work by the power of the Spirit to be at that gospel center as much as possible. Here's the problem with those two ditches. Uh, first of all, we need both of these. We need all these verses. We need 13 and we need 14 through 16. That's why they're in there. Okay? That's the first issue. We can't be reductionistic in the way we look at the scriptures. Uh, and both extremes, both ditches, really steal power and beauty from the gospel. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, first of all, moralism makes the gospel less beautiful because if you're a moralist, if you really like verses that say, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so then you, so you, you know all the rules and, and God said that and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be holy, just like he's holy. I can do it. I'm going to be really self-disciplined. If, if that's the way you look at it, uh, moralism makes the gospel less beautiful because you don't think you need it. You can really convince yourself that you can do this thing. 
You can follow the rules good enough to be holy like God is holy. People can be deluded in that way. Uh, And here's the problem, though. Long term, you end up broken one of two ways. A moralist every single time. And, And oftentimes, moralists are religious, but they don't always have to be. There are moralists that aren't Christians at all. There's people that are just very, they very much like rules and they very much like to see that there's guardrails and they're like, okay, I'm going to walk that, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to essentially look down on anybody else that I think does it less than I do. But here's the problem. A moralist will end up broken every single time one of two ways. Either they're going to figure out that... uh, they're going to figure out they can't actually keep up with the rules, even their own, even their own standard, they're going to they're gonna end up broken because they're going to realize, I don't even keep the standard that I, I don't make it. And so if that was your salvation, right, if that was the grid you were using to find self-worth and have an identity is that I'm a good rule keeper, once you realize you can't, you end up broken and the gospel is nowhere to be found. Uh, or even maybe worse than that, you're, you end up broken because you think you can. <laughs> you actually are at the point where you think you've got it. You're holy like God is holy. And uh, you get to strut around and tell everyone else how they're not holy like God is holy. And um, there were some guys like that in the Bible. They, they wore long robes and tall hats, and Jesus had some words for them. Um, go check that out for yourself. It's a fun study. Uh, so moralism steals power from the gospel. The antinomian side or the relativist side also steals power from the gospel because, first of all, it robs us of the internal and external witness of the transforming power of grace through the gospel. What does that mean? If you, if you buy into this message that is preached that because of grace, you, have, you don't need to have any concern for God's law, you don't need to have any concern for God's standards, you don't need to care. I mean, it, basically, they would just ignore or explain away what Peter does in verses 14 through 16. This call to like care about how you conduct yourself in light of the grace of God and the beauty of the gospel. And when you do that, when you buy into that, when it's just kind of anything goes, uh, doesn't matter, there's no conviction, uh, what happens is the, the, the internal witness you have of how beautiful the gospel is, how I talked about earlier that God in his mercy is there willing to receive your repentance and, and, and deal with you in your frailty. If you don't think there are any rules or nothing really matters, then you're, you're never going to have a conviction. You're never going to realize you need the help of grace and the gospel on a daily, hourly by-the-minute basis for most of us, right? Uh, it's, it's not there. You don't see that. And so it robs uh, power from the gospel that way. And, 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 of course, the external witness as well, right? Um, you, you have no story to tell of how God's grace has helped you and changed you. You're kind of just, just happy-go-lucky. Uh, rules don't matter. Grace means God loves everybody no matter what in every circumstance. And uh, it doesn't matter how we conduct ourselves. And that, so those are, those are two ditches. How do people end up as an antinomian or as a, as a relativist? Well, a lot of times they had legalistic or moralistic parents, or they went to a very legalistic or moralistic church, and so they got to the point where they could make a decision, and they grabbed that steering wheel and went woof, way over to the other ditch, and I'm going to roll over here. Um, how do people end up as legalist moralists? Typically, they're raised in an environment or situation where there are no rules, and they see the absolute carnage that comes 
from having no restriction upon your life, no care for the laws or the character of God. And so they jerk the wheel all the way over. Like, I'm not going to do that. I've seen that path, how that goes. So I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to be rigid and strict. And, and both of those are overcorrections. You can think of it as a wheel on a highway. I'm, I'm a hillbilly, so cars, you know, whatever. You think of it as a pendulum swinging one way or the other. We overcorrect all the time. Question here, friend. So we're all saying, yeah, people do that. No, I'm saying you do that. You've overcorrected somehow right now. And so I'm asking you to, at some point in this service, now's fine. Submit to God, Lord, help me see. Where are my blind spots? And which ditch is my front tire in? <laughs> you know, um, and help me find that gospel center. Praise God. I hope that's helpful. It's helpful to, for me. Uh, I, I just want to say that verses 14 through 16 utterly terrify me without verse 13. And that's why we read the Bible in context, because if I am not fixing my hope completely on the grace to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ, if, my, if I'm not completely, not just partially, it's not a mix of, well, God's grace is there, if maybe I don't make it, but I've got a pretty good shot to make it, because I mean, right? No, no, no. My hope is completely placed in, predicated upon King Jesus, his gospel, and his grace if I have that verse, I can move into and see this high bar set by Peter as something beautiful. That as obedient children, I don't want to be conformed to the former lusts that were because of my ignorance. And I know by God's help, I can do that. I don't have to be a slave to the things I used to be a slave to. I don't have to get my feet entangled in the traps that I used to. Because um, I, I was dumber than I used to. I, I used to be dumber than I am now, and that's because God has helped me. I haven't necessarily, my IQ hasn't raised, but my spiritual discernment by the grace of God has gotten better, and I can see traps when they're coming, uh, and the Spirit of God helps me. I hope he's helping you. Um, I can actually, I, I can look at this call that, we, I, you shall be holy for I am holy. I can, I can look at this idea that my character should reflect the character of God and not just shrink down into a puddle, which, would, if without the grace of God, that would be my response. And if, if that's, Without the, if you don't have the grace of God and that's not your response to that verse, you're not paying attention or you just don't know what it means. Flat out. You understand what I'm talking about? Be holy like God is holy. If you don't understand grace and you don't understand that God is, is going to help you with that and that his power is a part of the paradigm of, of how that can even be possible, you're either not self-aware or you don't understand what God's holiness means or something because that should shake you down to your skeleton <laughs> uh, if you don't understand the grace of God. Thankfully, we do. Uh, and, and our, our understanding of that is increasing as we walk forward in faith by the help of Christ. So I'm thankful for all of that. I hope you are too. Uh, let's look at verse 17 together. So he, he lays all that out. He's, he sets our eyes, first of all, you fix your hope completely on the grace that is a result of what Jesus Christ has done. He calls us to holiness as a result of God's holiness then verse 17, I told you this is going to be a fluid mix of motivations and implications. So he's kind of moving back and forth between, if this is true, then this should be true. If this is true, this should be true. If this, if this is a reality, well, then this should be a reality. And this is Peter's thought pattern. So first thing he says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges. Okay, so what's he saying? If you come to God and presume to call him father, which I think we... 
we joyfully do. Those of us who have received the good news of the gospel, we know that we've been grafted in, adopted in as sons and daughters. This is something we rejoice in probably weekly uh, because it's, it's amazing that God could treat us uh, and, and adopt us as his children as opposed to casting us away, which is clearly what we deserve. But if, if we address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then, so if that's true, if you call him Father... Then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Many of your translations will put the word reverent in front of that fear. That's a, that, it's not, the word reverent isn't there necessarily in the Greek, but it's, in, it's, it's connotated in the word, so it's helpful. I wish NASB would have done it. Really, yourselves in reverent fear during the time of your stay here on earth, right? We know Peter's not saying we should be in fear uh, of the same kind as trembling in front of an enemy that would be coming to destroy us or anything like that. Of course, that wouldn't be what's commanded here because the most prevalent command God gives his people throughout the scriptures is not to fear in that way, right? We don't fear uh, external enemies. We don't fear Satan or any of his forces because of God and his power, not because we're tough, but he is. So uh, the fear he's talking about here is a reverence. It's an awe. And if you're going to call the one who judges impartially according to each one's work, uh, if you're going to call him father, then, then what you should do is conduct yourself in reverent fear during the time that you stay here on earth. And so if he's, the short version, if God's your father, you should walk with some reverence and respect and honor his character. It should matter to you on a daily basis. All of your thoughts and words and actions should be run through the grid of, I call the king of glory father. He calls me son or daughter. And so how does that affect the next set of words that are about to exit my mouth and or the thoughts and imaginations that I'm entertaining at this moment and or the next course of action I'm about to take? He's my father. I'm a son or daughter. That should cause some reverence. That should cause us to slow down a bit and it should help us with the decision-making process. I really enjoy and, and, and I'm thankful for uh, Peter's understanding that he could have just said in, in a very like plain vanilla way, um, be holy, be reverent to God, uh, keep your mouth shut and march, right? I mean, he could have just done that and that really we would have listened to that because that's what God's word says. However, he understands that it's helpful for us as children, just like it's helpful with your kids sometimes. I'll tell Max to do something and what's, what's the question that comes out of his mind? Hey, go take that thing downstairs. What, what, what does he say to me, parents? Why? Now, thankfully God's better than me because I just want to boot him in the behind down the stairs. What do you mean why? <laughs> because I said so, right? And that's all you need to know ever. But that's not good parenting. Uh, now, so, now, I'll say this. This isn't a parenting class. I didn't mean to do this. Sometimes my kids just need to do what I say because I say. And, and if there's trust and love cultivated there, they will. Um, you know, if, if I say, come here quickly, I hope they'll do that because they know dad's looking out for them, and I might be getting them out of danger or whatever it is, but at the end of the day, sometimes what I need to do is understand that that why from my son is not defiance, it's, it's curiosity. He wants to understand how I think, because really, if you could get him honest, he wants to think how I think. So instead of being impatient with him, I need to slow down and say, hey man, well, I need you to take that down there, because where it's sitting right now is super dangerous, and if someone steps on it, they're going to fall down the steps, so I need you to take it and put it where it goes. Oh, Okay. Uh, and that's, that's, to some degree, that's what I see Peter doing here with us. There's some graciousness in 
this motive implication back and forth. Here's the commands, but here's why. Here's, what, here's the, the flow of thought that should help us to these things not to just be religious, uh, kind of just law or just rules for the sake of rules, but we can, we can get a glimpse at the heart of the Father and, and the way he thinks about it, which is good for us. Hallelujah. Um, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but instead with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. First thing I want to point out to you here is, is this idea of, of redeemed. That's, we say that word a lot. I think we should understand, slow down. Maybe, maybe we haven't done a good job explaining Redeemed has this, it's a connotation of purchasing. Like the clearest example is probably somebody coming and paying with some kind of currency to buy a slave out of slavery. So if you see the word redeemed tied to what Jesus has done with us, it's that he paid a currency, he paid something to free us from slavery to Satan, sin, and self, and death, okay? And so he's, we're in, right now we're in motive mode, Right? Peter's about to tell us what we should do in light of this, but he, he's given you something to help you be motivated to obey God. Here's what it is. Because you were purchased or redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but what bought you, friend, the currency that purchased you away from the taskmaster of sin and death that ruled you. The price that was with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. What's Peter doing? Friend, I hope this helps you. It helps me to contemplate the cost. What it cost God to have me. What it cost him to have you. What it cost him to clear the way for you to not any longer have to dwell in death and darkness, but to be able to brought, be brought transformed into a son or daughter, into somebody that walks in light and life. It costs blood. Gold couldn't have got it done. All the gold that is on this planet couldn't have got it done. It was something more expensive than that. It was the precious blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Christ, our Lord and Savior. So because of that, uh, <laughs> we should also conduct ourselves in reverent fear knowing what it cost our God. Uh, I want to point out to you that it says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. This ties back to the idea before. And I, <laughs> uh, Peter, Peter was blunt in the Gospels, was he not? I mean, he was the guy that just would say what he was thinking. And that comes through here, and I appreciate it so much. First of all, he said, don't be conformed to the former lusts which you were yours in your ignorance. Y'all were ignorant. And he just says it. Well, that kind of hurts my feelings. I don't think Peter cares. <laughs> he wants you to know that before God got a hold of you, he started to help you think right. You was ignorant. You did ignorant stuff. You said ignorant things. You made a mess of your life. And you hurt other people in, in, in the meantime. This, this is, you can tell he's, this flow of thought is still there. He said, 
you were, you were bought away, not with perishable things like silver or gold, from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. I don't know how much you use that word, futile, but just think about this for a second. I think, again, if you look back to your life before Christ, I think a lot of times what people do, uh, I think a lot of people think they have a, a pretty good life. They may think they're pretty good people. Things are relatively okay, but maybe there's some gnawing sense or they're at a church service somewhere. Somebody starts talking about eternity and they're like, you know what? On all my to-do lists, the, the box I haven't ticked is like what to do with eternity. And so, okay, so there's heaven and hell. Okay, so this guy has a Bible. He says that if I, if I pray this prayer or if I trust in this Jesus guy, uh, then we got, we got heaven instead of hell. That sounds good. I'll have that. Okay, good. Tick, tick that box off. Check that box. And then everything just kind of continues as it, was, as it was. I got the eternity thing figured out. We checked that box off. I'm, I'm right with God or however they think about it. And, and on they move. If, if, if the Lord of glory, if, if, if what the Bible describes as redemption and salvation really happens in a person, they're not going to look back on their former life and, and think, oh yeah, that's great, I just, I just needed to add in a prayer there so I could end up going to heaven instead of hell, because I guess that's required. Our life, aside from, or bef- before or aside from, Connection with the God that made us, in service to the God that made us, as a part of the mission he has given his children, is futile. What does that mean? Worthless, of no value. Well, that sounds kind of harsh. It's true, though. <laughs> it may be harsh, but it's true. Because here's the thing. Uh, and to, to illustrate futility, just... Any of you ever been hiking or driving or in some way you've gotten lost um, and, and so you're trying to find your way. This doesn't happen a lot more anymore because uh, we have little devices with all human knowledge in our hands that guide us around. But there was a time when people had maps and had to have like some kind of sense of direction. Have you ever been lost is my question or you've heard about that that used to happen <laughs> in a movie or in a book. Uh, so, there, you know, there's this idea, especially if you get in the woods, it's really easy to get turned around. And you could hike for miles and miles and miles and then come back around and find the mark you made, you know, two hours ago. And you just hiked your guts out. And, and all you did was hike in a circle. And I'm right back at the same spot. That, to me, is a good picture of futility. And here's what Peter says. Your life before being redeemed with the perfect blood of Christ was that. An endless marching trip in a circle with no real purpose. No real accomplishment. And here's the thing. Well, but I, was, I did good in business, and I raised my kids, and I did all this. Here, here's what you got to see. Here's what you got to understand. Aside from being connected to God, aside from fulfilling the purpose for which you were created, which is to love God and enjoy Him and be a part of His purposes, all of the other stuff you would list as accomplishments, futile. This should do two things for us. First of all, some of you are still bucking against the idea. I humbly submit to you that you would go to God in this, quit being offended by it, and understand if, if a fish is made to swim, if the fish doesn't swim, it's, it's a worthless fish. If a bird is made to fly and the bird don't fly, it's a worthless bird. If a human is made to commune with God and obey him and love him forever, and he doesn't love God and obey him forever, he's a worthless human. Woo, I heard a half a woo out there, come on. I'm going to hire some charismatics to come teach this church how to amen, man. They'll do it for money. 
I'm going to blend them, sprinkle them in here. It's okay, man. If you feel a woo, go ahead. Because that was a woo moment. Because it's true. It's true. Don't be offended by it. Understand that a human outside of connection to the God that made them, their life is futile. This should have two searing ramifications for us. The first is an undying, never-ending, in every moment gratitude that I'm not living a futile life marching around in the woods in a circle looking at the same mark every couple hours. Are you thankful for that? See, not understanding how futile life is outside of God is part of how we end up having bratty, unthankful, uncommitted Christians. Maybe. Life is futile without God. So thanksgiving should be the first implication of us understanding this. Without connection to Christ, life is futile, worthless. The second it should have is it should cause us to really weep for the lost and to really care about trying to help them in whatever way possible through the way we live our our Christian witness, to being quick and bold to speak the truth and love to them. We should care. Too many times, man, you're looking at other people's life and you're like, well, they got their whole Sunday free. Come on, man. Wake up. Would you? They're, yeah, they do. They're free. They, they got enough time to make another lap around the trail. And look at that notch they put in the tree. Woo! And yet we... That, that person doesn't have to give to the furthering of God's gospel and his mission. Man, what I could do with an extra whatever percent... Okay, <laughs> if, that, if that's the way you want to look at it, the way I think we should look at it is uh, we, should, we should honestly, desperately care for, uh, be saddened by, and, 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 and there, there, sh- there should be an emotional response for us to think about how many people we know that's their life, around and around the loop, no purpose, no progress, nothing that's, that's going to count for eternity. That should cause us to get involved. That should cause us to cry out to God and ask him to help us to get involved. Lord, I don't know how to fix it. That's, a, that's the best place you could possibly be. First of all, realize you can't do it. But I hope you're caring, caring about and praying about how to get involved in helping other people not live a life of an endless, meaningless circle uh, apart from the God that made them. I... I hope that wrecks you. I hope you are simultaneously grateful you're not on that trail and simultaneously wrecked that there's a bunch of people that are. And you bring all that together and you let the, the, the Spirit of God breathe upon that and cause what should be a passionate, committed pursuit of Christ and being a part of his mission to share his gospel with the whole world. Amen. If that's people's life, an endless circle, no purpose, no connection to the God that made them. It is, it is no wonder that so many are self-medicating with sex and substances and entertainment. Listen, how long would it take you to have to find somewhere else to go mentally if that's all you were doing all day? Walking that two-hour that two loop through the woods. I've seen all these trees. I've seen all this dirt. <laughs> I've seen that log four million times, right? You're going to have to escape somewhere. And so what do people do? They, they pursue relationships. They pursue, 
they'll, they'll stick substances in their body. They'll entertain themselves into oblivion. They'll pursue power or some type of prestige or identity that they're hoping is going to break. If I can, I'll tell you what, if I got a million bucks, I wouldn't be stuck in these woods because I could buy myself a helicopter and get out of these woods. No, friend, a helicopter's going to crash. It won't ever make it there. Money won't get you out of there. There's only one thing. It's grabbing the hand of King Jesus, your Lord, surrendering to him. It's your only hope. And we carry that message with us, friends. So quit walking by people. When you see that dead, that dead look in their eyes or you see them acting the way dead people do, quit, quit looking down on them from your high horse. You ain't no better than them. Get in there. Love them. Help them. Be grateful that you see the truth. Hallelujah. Verse 20 and 21. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Uh, we, we touched verse, verse 2 of the first half of chapter 1. Uh, Peter begins to, he begins to unpack this idea of God's foreknowledge. It's something, obviously, that Peter thinks about a lot. It's come up again within one chapter of this letter. Uh, he, and he, what he's saying here is that, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he's come now, and that's for your sake. He stepped on the scene for you. Who is you? The ones that through him are believers in God. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and your hope are in nothing. No other pursuit, not yourself, no other person. Your faith and your hope, they are in God alone. Only if that's true do we avoid the endless potential pitfalls that come in our hope being placed in anything else. What, what can you draw out of this? For me, I think part of what this shows, and I think Peter's returning and recurring uh, emphasis upon the foreknowledge of God, he sees something in that that should be a comfort to us. That's why he keeps bringing it up. Because he ends that with saying, listen, your hope's going to be in God. He started by saying that, uh, that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So what is that, why does that go together? Why does knowing that before, the found, the, before God ever spoke and began to create anything, through eternity past, Christ was already there, this, this plan was already in place, well, what that should do is it should communicate to us this, a, a confidence, right? We should be able to be confident in God's power, in his good character, and, and really the fact that he knew what it was going to cost to make us, and he still made us. If that doesn't blow your mind, if that doesn't conjure in you some gratitude, I realize when you start to try to think of, okay, Christ foreknown before the foundations of the world. Okay, so before time ever began, God knew what was going to happen, but then time, he started time. Well, how did that, you know, I get it. Like, and maybe don't, don't work so hard on that. That's not necessarily the point. Here's the point. There was never, ever a time where God didn't know what was going to go down. And so when he initiated the creation process, he already knew it was going to cost him his son. What does that mean for you? What does that communicate about the character of our God? First of all, the fact that, because some people see it this way, and this is seriously flawed. 
They think God created everything, had a great seven-day experience, rested on the last one. Then he starts messing around with mankind. We're doing walks and stuff. And then one day, he looks over and sees them biting on this fruit he told them not to. And he's like, I can't believe they did that. And then he had to react and come up with a plan to figure out what to do. Man, (laughs) I, I seriously don't understand how you can read the Bible and think that's what happened. Peter's very clear here. That's not what happened. So what does that mean? First of all, uh, God knew what it would cost before he made us. God knew Jesus was going to have to go to the cross. He knew he was going to have to sever relationship within the very Godhead, endure that unimaginable for us pain, because we can't even imagine what it is like to be connected like like God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are, to be three co-eternal, co-equal, co-powerful persons in a perfectly loving relationship with uninhibited unity, no sin whatsoever. We can't possibly imagine the depth of that connection, which means we can't possibly imagine the depth of the separation and how much that had to have hurt. And if your brain hurts because of that little trail I just went on, so does mine, so don't feel bad, okay? Uh, but it tells us about God's character, that, that he is good and he is powerful. And, and honestly, I, I, just want, I just want to say it this way, because I, my, my first reaction is to be defensive when I hear stuff like this, and i got to get better at not being. Um, and, and I need God's grace to help me with that, because I'll hear people say or read stuff online. Uh, somebody will say, yeah, well, uh, I'll believe in God or, or I'll worship God when he quits giving kids bone cancer, stuff like that, right? Just things along that line. Oh, yeah, your God's real good. Well, look at this kid with bone cancer. And what, and what are they saying? They probably don't know a kid with bone cancer. They're thinking of the worst possible example they can think of, which is a kid with bone cancer, and I agree. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible that it happens. It's the worst. However, the only way you can blame God for pediatric bone cancer is by missing what Peter's saying right here. It's the only way you can do it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give you an example to illustrate that. I made a big statement, so l- let me see if I can back it up. Imagine with me that you go on a mission trip with 10 people, okay? So you guys all saddle up, you got your bags, hit the airline, there you go, down to South America somewhere. And one of the people on the mission trip there's eight others, there's you, and then the person you love more than anybody else in the world is with you on this mission trip, okay? Get your mind there with me. Put yourself there, all right? You guys travel down. Uh, you go to a village deep in the Amazon. You go down there to love and help people. And uh, you roll up to this village, and, and you meet the chief of the village. He comes out to greet you. And you not knowing the customs, or maybe you didn't listen to the debrief or whatever, you lock eyes with the chief, not knowing that that's going to offend him deeply in his culture, and that's a no-no, you do not look directly at the chief, and you offend him. And so immediately, he says something that you can't tell what it is. The villagers tie you all up, and then they, they pull you off, and uh, they tell you they're going to either kill the person that you love the most that's there with you, Maybe you had matching handkerchiefs so they know you're together. So they put a spear to that person, and then they put a spear to everyone else's neck, and here's what they're saying. You offended the chief. You're about to pay. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to kill this person you love the most, or we're going to kill all the rest of the people. That's, and you're going to have to make a choice. 
Now, some of you are struggling to keep up the story. Some of you tracked off on me. Some of you have emotionally put yourself in this situation. You understand I've described for you potentially the most difficult thing, most difficult situation you could possibly get put in. Because you've got eight other people with a spear to their neck, the person you love more than anybody with a spear to their neck, and you've got to pick, because they're going to kill somebody, because you stared at the chief in the eyes. So here's my question. What do you do? What would you do? Now, all the dudes in here that are like me, like, I'd fight my way out. Oh, that's not an option, okay? <laughs> I, yeah, I see you in the back, Mr. Pointer. Yes. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, and no, I'm not going to go down that road. Um, you don't have that option, man. You're tied up with jungle vines. You're stuck. They got you. You got to make the choice. Here's, why did I put you in that position emotionally? Uh, I, I want you to think about, I want you to really emotionally grapple with how difficult that decision would be either way. You got to pick one. So let's say you do, you, you do what probably seems like the right thing, preserving the most human lives, and you choose for them to kill the person you love more than anybody. Boom. They fall down to the dirt. How hard was that whole scenario, like emotionally? Is that a tough day? Or let's say you can't do it. You're looking in the eyes of the person you love more than anybody else, and you're like, you know what? Feels wrong, but kill all them. Was that an easy day? Pretty emotionally taxing? Friends, our God experienced this anguish, and he chose us. It was either, before the foundations of the world, before he chose to create us, it was either put Jesus on the cross and let him bleed and die, murdered by his own creation, or it was never have all of you for eternity. He chose. But don't you dare try to tell me it was easy. Don't you dare try to tell me he's not a good God with a good loving character. And don't you dare try to tell me that God is running around sprinkling pediatric cancer on kids. He's a good God, and he's a loving God. And every single kid with bone cancer, you think it bothers you? The kids get bone cancer? It bothers me. I hope it bothers you. I hope it tears you up to know that little children suffer that way. You think that bothers you? What do you think the God of the universe that can feel that mama's heart and that daddy's heart, can see down in the depth of that baby's heart that's struggling, that loves them infinitely more than anyone else in the situation. How do you think he feels about the effects of sin and the curse? And you know what else? Before the foundation of the world, he had to choose to go through the pain it causes him, every result of sin and the curse, all the things that bother us. He had to decide, I will suffer all that pain because of the end goal of me and them forever. And a part of the price he paid, the biggest part, is that his own son had to be slain Upon a wooden cross. So you could just breeze by that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But here's what I want you to understand Peter's saying something here. And the implications of that should tell you something deep and real about who your God is and whether or not he's worthy to be worshiped. Amen. Verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another 
from the heart. First question, okay, so here we have motive implication again, right? What's he say? Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Motive, implication, fervently love one another from the heart. Okay, so obedience to what truth? Some may disagree. I would, I would run back. I think this is the same exact flow of thought and is all coming out of the truth. He told us, what did he say? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he starts laying out all these motive implication back and forths. And this is still in the same flow of thought. The truth that we have in, in obedience to purified our souls for a sincere love, that truth is the grace and the truth of the gospel, which I think is the only way to make sense of since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. How have our souls been purified? Is it because we just bore down on it and did it ourselves? Do we have the power to do that? No. What we need is help. We need grace. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. And so this truth that we have obeyed, that's purified our souls, is the gospel, is the grace mentioned in verse 13. And what is then... So since that's happened, what has it done? Well, it's prepared us for a sincere love of the brethren. And so since it's done that, what we should do is fervently love one another from the heart. Okay? I, I don't have time to unpack it even close to the depth, but again, you could miss, you could miss some of the beauty and the depth of what Peter is saying here by saying, okay, i got to fervently love the brethren and just plucking out of our current cultural context some half-baked definition of love, applying it to the verse and saying, okay, I'm probably good. Like, I'm generally amiable to people. I have a generally positive attitude towards people. Um, I, you know, am generally peaceful or, or whatever it is, right? Just quickly, if we're going to fervently love people based on the way that God defines love in the Scriptures... 1 John 3.16 says that by this we know love, that he, that being Jesus, laid his life down for us, and so we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's right. So if we're going to fervently love one another from the heart, how are we going to do that? It's because our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth of the gospel. Only the gospel is going to give us the power to really fervently love one another in the way that the Bible describes, which is for us to lay down our lives for one another the way Jesus laid his life down for us. Friend, I realize <laughs> that is an incredibly big call, and it really just pushes us back to verse 13 again to understand if what I'm being asked to do is fervently and, ex and be excited about laying my life down for the sake of others every single day, all the time, and to make that choice always because of what the gospel has done in my heart. Again, we have a bar set somewhere near the same height as be holy because I'm holy, Right? I'm, I'm not that loving most days. But what I'm given here is a, is a command. I'm given a motive. Here's, here's the power source for this. It's not you. Here's the implication. Fervently love one another. Keep pursuing it. When you fall short of it, repent and then get up and keep going. And trust God to empower you. Continue to look at how Jesus has loved us. And let, let that be reflected in your life and let it flow from you uh, in your relationships with other people. That I, we could have done, we could just hang out there for weeks, but we're not gonna. Um, 
So keep thinking about it by the, the grace of God. Okay, we'll keep going. I got to get away from it or else you guys will starve in your seats. Uh, let's, let's take 23 through 25 together. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The uh, grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Okay? Uh, what do we see here? First of all, I hope everyone knows this. If you don't, I shouldn't have said it that way. If you're new to the Bible, sometimes what happens is when you see words all capitalized like this, maybe, and maybe not every Bible does it, but uh, mine does, and what that is, every time you see that, that's quoting verses from somewhere else. Uh, and, and, and here, specifically, what's being quoted is Isaiah chapter 40. So Peter, in making this appeal, put all of your hope in the grace of God. Be holy as God is holy. Think about the fact that you were bought with the blood of Christ um, live in light of all of these things, right? Uh, and think about the fact that God knew everything it was going to cost, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundations of the world, all of these things. And then he, and then he comes to the, the, this, uh, love one another fervently, right? And then and he says, because you're going to be able to do all that because you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, not of some half-baked thing, not, you, this isn't going to this isn't going to get running and going and stop. This is an imperishable seed. It's the living and enduring word of God. And then he quotes Isaiah here, who says, look, listen, man, flesh is like grass. It grow a little bit. The sun will scorch it. It's dead. You can't, you can't count on it. But the word, in contrast to that, the word of the Lord endures forever. What does that mean for us, friends? It means you can throw yourself into the mission of loving God, loving people, and making disciples with the utmost confidence that God's not going to change his mind about it. He's not going to up and quit. This isn't like in the early 2000s when a bunch of people moved out to California because these companies were starting up in this place called Silicon Valley, and there was billions of dollars being made, and everybody was jumping in, and, and people were buying stock in it. It's like, yay! It's gonna, everyone's going to prosper forever because of technology. It's going to be awesome. And then like a year later, that bubble popped, and a bunch of people jumped out of windows. Because they threw all of themselves into this dream of whatever it looked like for them. Um, you know, when Yahoo pops, I'm getting a yacht. Whatever that was. They threw their whole heart, soul, and identity into this thing. And it failed them, man. It didn't. It was perishable. Here's, here's what's being encouraged. Because Peter understands what he's saying. Whether we do or not. He is laying out some incredibly powerful motives, and then some really deep implications, and he's hammering us with them, and he understands what he's laying on us, and he ends this treatise by saying, listen to me, I understand, I'm, call I'm asking for all of your life. You can't do what these several verses have asked of us without being completely and totally sold out all the way in with no reservation. Anything short of that, you're not coming close to walking out these verses. And he knows he's just asked that of you. And he's like, here's why it's okay. Here's why you can do that without being scared. Because flesh fails, people fail, businesses fail, stuff fails, but the word of God, never. Never, not once. And so you can jump into this with full confidence. And it's never going to let you down. You were born again with seed that is imperishable, not perishable. Some of you have gotten involved in other things before. Some of you have given your all into something before, and it didn't work. Or it's in the middle of crumbling right now. 
And that causes you, whether you understand it or not, to be hesitant about really signing up for all that we're called to from verses 13 to 25 here. And friend, I just want to submit to you, other people have failed, I'm certain of it. If you're breathing and you're sitting here, somebody's failed you. It's probably me. Systems have failed. Organizations have failed. Groups of people have failed. The truth of the word of God, the eternal love of God, this mission is never going to stop. It's never going to fail. It's never going to fall out from under you. This house is not a house of cards. This thing's built on granite, and its cornerstone is Christ. And so it doesn't matter what comes. It ain't blowing over. So quit holding back. Jump in, both feet, all the way. You won't regret it. On this idea of the Word of God enduring forever, there's a guy by the name of Bernard Ram. Here's what he said. A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed. The inscription cut on the tombstone. The committal read. But somehow, the corpse never stays put. I like how Robbie Zacharias says it. I won't get it exactly, but he says, there's, there's been, he says, the Bible always outlives its pallbearers. There's been people declaring the word of God is done. I mean, go back through history again and again and again. That's what this guy's saying. Somebody's rang the bell that the Bible's dead. They've cut the tombstone. Somehow, man, that thing won't stay down. The word of God endures forever, friend. Hallelujah. May we fix our hope completely on the grace given to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know what? I feel compelled by the Spirit to stop for a moment and just say something to you. If you've been around here any amount of time, you know the service is about over. Because you know at the end of every service, I'll have a few statements started with, may we. And for some of you, that may have just become a signal for the end of the service. And I want to encourage you that there's a reason why I do this. There's a reason why I believe the Spirit of God has us end, end every service this way. Because the reality is, dear friends, we've talked about some really profound things today. We have, we have plumbed some deep waters today by the Spirit of God and His Word. Uh, but if what we do with that is agree, a few of you even amen, which I'm so stoked on. Um, we got excited in a few spots. We laughed in a few places. If all we do is hear it and, and agree with it, Literally, we've done and accomplished nothing. We should not have done this. It was a waste of our time. And so every, at the end of every service, we end with what could be called a benediction. This is a prayer. This is a, 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 this is a, a declaration of hope and faith that we will actually do these things that are implications of what God has drawn us to and taught us through his word. And so uh, let us, the problem sometimes with tradition is that be, they become traditional. And then they just kind of fly over our heads. Don't, don't let that happen. Don't really, I'm asking you to pull by faith with me and believe these things for our church. Believe these things for every single person that has been bought away from sin and death by the blood of Christ. I'll start again. May we fix our hope completely on the grace given to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. May we 
seek to be holy as our God is holy. And may we commit wholeheartedly to gospel mission and the furthering of God's eternal kingdom for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus, first of all, overcome by gratitude. We're thankful for an audience with you. We know we don't deserve it. We know it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we as your people get to pray to you right now, that we get to join our faith together and to approach your throne room and believe that you hear us. Thank you that you don't only hear, but you respond. Thank you that you care. Thank you that you're with us. Lord, uh, we are exceedingly grateful for the truth of your word that we've journeyed together through tonight. Thank you, God, for the life-changing and and the the heart and mind transforming power of your word, your enduring, never-failing word. We are thankful for it, Lord. We ask you to help us, God, as it pertains to every single thing, not not just rising to the challenges that were given us today through the apostle, but uh, in everyday life, God, may, may we totally, completely, and only focus our hope in the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, if, we're, if we are self-aware and if we are honest, we need grace. <laughs> we need your help. Not just to do these, these big Bible calls that we see here, but to raise our kids, to be good spouses, to, be, to do good at our jobs and, and not end up scorning our bosses and to, to be faithful in every arena, to, to do good at anything. Lord, we, we sincerely and genuinely need your help because we are prone... <sighs> We are prone to thoughts that are not like yours, and we're prone to dissatisfaction and ingratitude all over the place, God. And Lord, we just we need to keep in mind that without your grace, without your grace, literally death and hell was what we could expect. And so whatever we get aside from that is something worth shouting your praises about. Dear God, help us to care about holiness. Let us never be foolish enough to think that that's how we're going to gain your love or affection. But Lord, let us take seriously this command that by your grace and by the help of your spirit, that we would seek to be holy as you are holy, that we would not set the benchmark at some other person we know. Either way, down or up from us in in behavior, Lord, but may we let the mark of our behavior and conduct be you. May may we sincerely desire for our lives and our words, God, even our thoughts, because that affects our lives and our words, may they really reflect your holiness. We need your help for that, Master. Lord, may we never, ever, ever treat as a common thing the blood of Christ. May we never, ever begin to feel like we somehow deserve to be purchased with the precious currency of the blood of the spotless lamb. God, may we never think that that's a common thing. And may that affect the passion with which we serve you, the tenacity with which we love and serve others. Uh, Lord, may we be thankful for the price you were willing to pay for us forever. Lord, help us to, help us to not hold back. Help us to trust your enduring word. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful that you didn't put one foot in and then back away. You committed to the plan. You went all the way, all the way to death. Lord, may I follow you in that. 
Help me go all the way. I won't do it without you. I need your help. Lord, I need your spirit to help quell my fears and insecurities by the day, but God, I know that you will. Lord Jesus, you, you saddled upon your people the mission of loving you and, and loving others and preaching the gospel and making disciples. And, but you said you'd be with us, and so Lord, we thank you for that. We declare our need for your presence and the help of your spirit. And Lord, we celebrate the fact that you are faithful and that you've called us, that we get to be a part. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.